Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Gareth Russell and I love the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. This is the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Rebecca Larson, and this is episode number 110. I'm so excited to share this episode with you because we cover some really fun subjects and chat with some new friends too. First, Dr. Michael Jones and I discuss the Black Prince, Edward of Woodstock, and his connection to Henry VIII. Then Steph asks author Gemma Holman, your listener submitted questions on royal witches and witchcraft. Lastly, I give you a brief history on Anne Parr to wrap up the Parr siblings after the last two episodes. Now, before we get started, a quick shout out to my newest patrons. Aries Rainbow Child, Jessica C, Janice T, Patricia H, Donna H, Savannah C, Jody K, Teresa L, Elizabeth N, Stephanie M, Jacqueline L, Elena A, und Wunderhund. I had to say it like that. That's such a great username. I'd also like to thank all of my existing patrons as well, because without the support of all of my patrons, this show would not be possible. So I can't thank you enough. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so in two places now, Patreon or Podbean. Same great benefits, but two different places for those who ask for a different option. Oh, and I almost forgot, March 2021 patrons will receive an ebook copy of Tony Rich's book on Charles Brandon. So if you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll have links in the show notes for you to follow. All right, let's get on with the show. Michael, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Rebecca. Now, you have never been on the show before, and so maybe we could just start off by you telling the listeners a little bit about your background. Sure, well... I, I work freelance as a, as a history writer, uh, a presenter, and a tour guide, uh, and I I really love that combination of things. I've written I've written fourteen books, um, most on my own, but but some with other people, including uh, a book with Philippa Gregory, and uh, another one with Philippa Langley. So the one with Philippa Gregory was called the Women of the Cousins' War, and Philippa, another historian, David David Baldwin and I, we, we wrote that together about some remarkable women that inspired the TV series, which I, I think many of your readers will be familiar with. So my medieval books, because I've written from the Middle Ages, which was where I, I did my doctorate, uh, on the, the Hundred Years' War at the University of Bristol. Um, but I enjoy writing about the modern period as well. But with the Middle Ages, I've written about the Black Prince, uh, a biography of the Black Prince. I've written about the Battle of Agincourt. I've written a book on the Battle of Bosworth and also one 
on how Richard III was discovered. That was the one I wrote with Philippa Langley. So I, I hope that gives you a flavor of <laughs> what I'm up to. <laughs> well, I can't wait to talk about a lot of the stuff that you just mentioned today, but I want to start um, with the Wars of the Roses, because I know the people listening right now are familiar with it. We've covered it a couple times, but I don't generally go too far in depth with it. I had recently seen a question posed on social media, and I thought it would be an interesting place for us to begin today. The question was, who do you believe was responsible for the Wars of the Roses? <laughs> well, there, there are many ways of approaching that. Um, but I guess I, I'm going to be a traditionalist and say that at heart, I think it was the failures of Henry VI, the Lancastrian king, Henry VI, which led to the Wars of the Roses. I mean, there, there are many other factors, and one could have other candidates. But for me, Henry VI, uh, he, he was a very pious man, but just absolutely unable to govern the country. And uh, that was at the root, uh, in my mind, of the start of the Civil War. Just I'd add one thing to that, that in the reign of Henry V, his father, who was almost the exact opposite, who was a, a vigorous king, a great warrior, and a, a very firm administrator, the houses of Lancaster and York work well together. So I, I, I focus really on the personal failings of Henry VI. So that's your answer. I think, and, and I think you're right that there are so many different answers that you could mm. come away with. I think my opinion on it has always been that, you know, Edward III had too many sons. <laughs> that was the problem. <laughs> yeah, he did. Uh, he did indeed have a lot of sons. That's very true. Now, the person that I wanted to talk to you about today is one of his sons, and I believe was his eldest son, and we know him as the Black Prince. So for those who are unfamiliar with who the Black Prince was, could you give us a, just a brief description? Yeah, sure. So he was never known as the Black Prince in his lifetime, and indeed, just to be on topic, the first appearance of this um, nickname occurs in the Tudor period in, uh, in the writings of an antiquarian, John Leyland, in about 1542. And then uh, in print for the first time in about 1570, the Chronicle of Richard Grafton. And that was the source used by Shakespeare. So, of course, Shakespeare immortalized this nickname, the Black Prince, in his play, Henry V. So... <laughs> Really, the, the name the Black Prince is a Tudor creation or emerges in the Tudor period. His, he was known to contemporaries as Edward of Woodstock. So Woodstock is not the rock um, concert festival that is a royal palace where he was <laughs> born. And um, he was known as Edward of Woodstock. And tragically, although he was the oldest son of Edward III and Philip of Hainaut, he died a year before his father. He died in 1376, and his father died a year later. So he was a prince who never became king. And uh, that, that gave his story, I mean, it made his story very poignant. And one could say many things about him. He was a great warrior. He 
won some stupendous victories in France during the Hundred Years' War. And he was renowned in his lifetime more than just for being a great warrior, but as a kind of paragon of chivalry, the code of chivalry that medieval society really tried to govern itself by. So he was, he was quite a hero in his time to friends and foe, because the French who are on the receiving end of his raids and <coughs> battles, they gave him a solemn memorial mass. So uh, he really created a big impression during his lifetime. He married for love, I should put this in, and he had a very beautiful wife, Joan of Kent. And um, his surviving son, Richard of Bordeaux, became Richard II, and rather like Henry V and Henry VI, was cut of a very different cloth from his father. So that's a little taster for Edward of Woodstock, now known as the Black Prince. I've always been curious, do you think he would have made a good king? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm, I'm biased in his favour. <laughs> yes, I, I do. <clears throat> One of the criticisms levelled against him is that he was a great warrior but kind of found administration boring and hadn't got the patience for it. And I, when I was writing my biography of the Black Prince, I, I looked very closely at he he was Prince of Aquitaine. This is a huge area of southwest France that briefly uh, um, the English held directly in sovereignty. They didn't have to um, render homage to the French king. Uh, it was only for nine years from the Treaty of Bretigny in 1360 through to the outbreak of war again in 1369. But it was a very, very big territory running from Poitou right down to the, the Pyrenees. And the Black Prince governed in a way that won him a lot of respect. It, it also made him some enemies because he was very principled as a ruler uh, and was a firm believer in justice and being impartial. Uh, but I, I think that those qualities um, would have made him a very good king. So that's my own view. I couldn't help but notice when you were describing him that I heard a lot of similarities to Henry VIII's character. Well, <clears throat> Henry VIII uh, was well-read on the Hundred Years' War and would have certainly known about the, the Black Prince and about Henry V. And I think it's an interesting, a very interesting point you've raised, Rebecca, that for role models, um, I mean, one could say that Henry's grandfather, um, and that, that is um, Ed, on, his, on the maternal side, so that's Edward IV, had a very good record in the Wars of the Roses. But looking further back, I, I think uh, Henry, Henry VIII, as a prince, was looking for role models in terms of the war with France. And I think the Black Prince, Edward III and Henry V would have figured very high on his reading list. So yes, I, I think he probably consciously emulated um, the Black Prince. 
That's so interesting. Certainly in his campaigning, early, early in his career. And he loved the tournament, which, of course, uh, both Edward III and the Black Prince did. And Henry, Henry VIII, we know, until he had his injury, he, he really reveled in the tournament atmosphere. Mm. So again, it's a recreation of that period. Now, you had mentioned to France, and that was one of the things that we've talked about before, um, Henry's fascination um, with, A, not only wanting to be a victorious warrior king, but his fascination with France. And so you say that stems all back to the Hundred Years' War? Well, I think there are a number of reasons that he has this uh, he has this great rivalry with Francis the First. They're kind of trying to outvie each other as Renaissance monarchs. Um, he is also around the power politics of 16th century Europe. But I think chivalry, um, the idea of chivalry, the idea of reintroducing uh, a martial strain to kingship, because of course, Henry VIII's father, Henry VII, was, was no warrior. I mean, one could say that he had other qualities, that whenever he turned up a battle, he's not Henry VII, that is, he was normally about a mile to the rear. <laughs> so, in a way, um, Henry VIII is is moving away from um, the legacy of his father and, and seeking out earlier role models. And um, France is the big stage, I think, for that um, fighting in France. So I think that, that it was a big deal for him. One of the areas um, that I th- really feel strongly that you can help me and the listeners understand is you're a military. <laughs> well, you, I know you can. You're a military historian. And so I am curious um, if you have any insight for us on, I know there wasn't necessarily a royal army per se back then, um, but men were called to arms, so to speak. I'm really curious, what kind of training would they get? Mm, well, there is a big change in in how our armies are recruited and trained in the 14th century under Edward III. And some historians have called it a military revolution. It's really the birth of a professional army. So that what we see is a proper system of recruitment. It's called indenture and retaining. And what that means is that the king will draw up a contract with some of his leading um, captains. Say the king will draw up a, a contract with the Duke of Lancaster. When the Duke of Lancaster is paid a certain amount of money and he has to bring a number of men, a number of men at arms, a number of archers. They need to be properly kitted out. And then they are actually mustered. That, that means they're drawn up in a line that, that everyone is name-checked. And also, the, 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 uh, <clears throat> when the muster is done, they check that people are actually in a condition to fight. You know, not kind of one leg, one eye, <laughs> uh, with proper with proper kit, with proper equipment. So we have um, uh, we're leading the way in Europe under Edward III. So the first thing is we have this system of recruitment, and then 
what happens is it's like a pyramid that the great captains then subcontract. So, I, you know, if, if Edward III contracts with the Duke of Lancaster for a certain number of men, the Duke of Lancaster will then contract with a number of smaller captains who will each bring their retinues. Now, that in itself adds a kind of professional ethos to the whole business of raising and keeping in the field an army. But over time, it also leads to a kind of esprit de corps because uh, people have fought in France before with their mates and they sign up again. Uh, they have more military experience. They literally watch each other's back. There's a kind of um, cohesion to the system. And um, it's also bound uh, very much at the top end of the pyramid by Edward III encouraging the cult of chivalry. Of course, he creates the chivalric order, the order of the garter, which again um, was a very big deal in the Tudor periods as well. But it's created around 1348. And um, it's, it's a sort of um, elite body chosen for martial valor, not rank. And it, it sets the tone so that um, knights of the, of the order always play a prominent part in, um, in the fighting. So we have a proper system of recruiting armies, and there is a kind of ethos, the chivalric ethos, that certainly binds together the top echelon, if you like, of that army. So it's a huge change that happens in the 14th and 15th century. That's very interesting. Thank you. I am curious, um, coming back to the Black Prince, is what was his involvement um, when it came to being involved in battles? Was he on the front line or was he standing back like Henry VII was? Oh, no, he was He was very much uh, a man for getting involved. I mean, as a commander, you obviously need to step back sometimes, but he would plunge into the thick of things. And uh, he, he won his spurs at the age of 16 at the Battle of Cressy. That was in 1346. It was a pulverizing triumph. And <clears throat> this is kind of tough love, 14th century style. Edward III, who was kind of surveying things from a command post, actually in a windmill, gave his son, 16 years old, uh, the honor position in the vanguard commander of the vanguard, but he was also a target for the French. We know that the French wanted to kill him or capture him, and they they broke through his protective um, ranks of soldiers uh, and came close enough to capture the standard, which would just be a few, you know, meters away, a meter, two meters away. <clears throat> the prince himself was knocked to the ground and concussed that picked himself up again and carried on fighting. And that experience, I mean, it was a, he could have been killed. And there, there was a very famous story where, related by the chronicler Frussel, where a desperate messenger runs to dad, runs to Edward III and says, look, your son will be killed. He'll be overwhelmed if you don't send reinforcements in. And Edward was guarding Edward III was guarding his reinforcements very carefully and said, 
famously, according to Froissart, let him win his spurs. In other words, let him triumph or die in the attempt, <clears throat> which does seem a trifle harsh. And, but if you're a bit worried about Edward III and thinking, oh my God, I, I can tell you that according to another chronicler, uh, Geoffrey LeBaker, he then relented <laughs> after making this great pronouncement and, and sent 40 of his best knights in to prop up the prince's position. And I think that whatever version or both versions, if, if we believe in them, it set the tone for the prince's life. He, he led from the front at, at the Battle of Poitiers 10 years later, where he was in command, his great triumph, where he captured the French king, John II. We know that the Black Prince and his close followers launched a cavalry charge uh, right at the French king. And I think it was very much hand-to-hand -hand fighting. So absolutely, he, he led from the front and um, he won a great deal of respect uh, for doing so. I don't think I've ever heard the phrase won his spurs before. Yes, it's the idea of uh, an initiation, really. So that uh, in the Middle Ages and, and with chivalry, often um, one, one's initiated, indeed, in, in, in the rituals into the order of knighthood, if, if one reads um, the books of the time. But uh, often it's the idea of proving oneself in battle uh, at that young age. Um, aristocrats in the, the medieval and early modern period started a martial training from the age of about eight or nine. In fact, we know the Black Prince started it when he was seven. Uh, he had his own armor, you know, scaled down for size, his own war tent, but they weren't toys. He was, he was learning. And then um, this was part of, you know, you do hours of weapons training every day as an aristocrat. And that, that built up strength, it built up familiarity with weapons. And of course, horsemanship comes into it as well, all, all these skills. So there is a very important range of skills. But this idea of initiation is very powerful. We should remember because moving on to the 15th century, that Henry V as prince ha had a very similar experience to the Black Prince, only this was in a civil war um, battle at Shrewsbury, where he was uh, fighting in the thick of things and actually badly wounded. He got an arrow in the face and, and his followers said, you know, get, get off the field of battle, you know, but he said, if I leave, um, we'll lose. And this is his father, Henry IV. So he carried on fighting, snapped the arrow off. So with the arrow head embedded in his face, he carried on fighting. And then they, they won the battle. But there was a terrible operation afterwards, which we have a quite detailed account of, because the surgeon who did it got handsomely rewarded. <laughs> But no anesthetic, and he used tongs, and he drew the um, the arrowhead out. And why I say this is what we don't see in the famous Tudor version, the Tudor picture of uh, Henry V. We kind of see the good side of his face, that the other side would have been completely scarred. And why that's so important 
is that when the going got tough in, in the Agincourt campaign, things looked very bleak for the English army. But when ordinary soldiers saw the king's face, they would remember immediately that this man, as prince, I mean, he was about the same age as the Black Prince. He, in fact, he was slightly, he was 15. Uh, they, they'd say to each other, well, you know, we're in a tough scrape, but remember that our king carried on fighting with an arrow in his face. That's the metal of our leader, so we'll stick by him. So the idea of initiation is very, very powerful, and it really um, cements the, 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 the leadership and the loyalty, because if someone is initiated into war, you can't learn this in a book. You know, you, you can't do a sort of, you know, you can't listen to podcasts or read books. <laughs> that you have to face the the pain, the agony, the danger, and come through it. And if you do, uh, it gives you something. And, and and soldiers sense these things. They sense when someone's up to it, or so, when someone isn't up to it, because in matters of life or death. One's antennae are ultra-sensitive. So initiation uh, is a ritual in terms of knighthood and in terms of chivalry, but it's also a raison d'etre for effective military leadership. I have so much respect for those men. They were so yeah, brave. Absolutely. It's amazing. They were, they were, uh, they were great warriors. And um, I, I have a lot of respect for them, too. So what did the final days of the Black Prince's life look like? Well, it, it was very sad, actually, Rebecca, because in, in the Middle Ages, there was this idea of the Wheel of Fortune, which, which kind of fascinated people. And it's a bit, it's a, a bit of a sort of scary idea. In the Wheel of Fortune, uh, it says, but when things are going brilliantly, when you're absolutely at the top, you know, everything is going well in your life, you know, career is great, relationships are great, you know, that's when you're closest to absolute disaster. <laughs> it's like, from our own point of view, it's like, whoa! <laughs> but, uh, and, and also, it's not just when you're at the top, you know, right at the top of the wheel, you could kind of tilt a little bit down it's you can go right from the top to right to the bottom straight away so it is quite a, a powerful idea and and the black prince's life is rather like that because in the 1360s he's absolutely at the summit you know he marries for love he's very beautiful wife he's governing um aquitaine effectively as ruler in the southwest of france people are saying his court was just admired all over Europe. He wins another victory uh, um, in northern Spain um, at Bahira. And, and gushing chroniclers, one chronicler, Henry of Knighton, says, the greatest battle seen in our time. So, every, I mean, this is absolute summit, the pinnacle. And then it all goes wrong very, very quickly. And one of the things that happens is that the prince becomes ill. Uh, we we don't know what the illness um, is was or is, but uh, it, it was very very painful. And by um, 1368, by late 1368, 
he had periods of agonizing pain when he was confined to his bed. And then the French, sensing an opportunity, renewed the war, and the war started going badly. Um, the prince left to return to England. And his last six years were spent in a lot of pain. And uh, a, a monastic community uh, at St. Albans that the prince was associated with, the chronicler there, um, Thomas Walsingham, describes in some detail how he would be in so much pain uh, that, that, that people thought he'd just die, but he'd sort of recover a bit, and then there'd be another sequence. So it was a very sad end that for, for the last five or six years, he was, he was very ill, and then the last period of illness did indeed lead to his death in the summer of 1376. So I, I, he was obviously suffering. And I also think that, I mean, he was very, very pious. And it may seem a strange combination from a modern point of view that someone who fights a lot is also very pious, that the Black Prince, his father, Edward III, and Henry V all were very pious. And for the Black Prince, I think that he genuinely came to feel that, that the English were being punished in the war in France, and he was being punished for a sin. So I think that it was a time of uh, painful illness and a time of sort of reflection, really, and soul searching. But he was, even when he was ill, he was he was held in great regard and affection by, by the people of England, um, as if he was a symbol of, you know, what could have been. Oh, that's amazing. And such a sad story, which... It's rem- very sad at the end, yes. It reminds me a lot of um, Richard III's end, and I, I definitely want to touch base on that and wrap up our, our interview here talking a little bit about um, your work in helping to find Richard III and Lester. Could you enlighten us a little bit on that? Well, the credit goes to Philippa Langley. Um, and she, she drove this uh, project, really, from the get-go. And uh, she, I don't know if you know the story, but back in the summer of 2004, I'd met Philippa a year earlier. And... Um, she was via uh, my ideas about Richard III in the book um, Boswell's Psychology of the Battle. She was in- interested in film and doing a screenplay about Richard III. And that was the reason in the summer of 2004 she went to explore the battlefield. And, and some friends said, why don't you go to Leicester and this was to a public car park, not the famous social services car park. They said you can see some medieval wall there. But um, Philippa is very intuitive, and she famously on this sunny afternoon wandered into the other car park. There was no one to stop her. The attendant had gone for a tea break or something. And that's where she said to me that I know where he's buried. And then she sort of lost confidence but the following year she went back and that's famously where the R appeared it was for reserve parking but uh, but from 2004 it was actually eight years till the dig started 
So it is an incredible story. And Richard's remains were found within half an hour, although the archaeologists didn't think they were human remains, but they were, they were Richard's remains. And they were found exactly in the spot that Philippa had um, sent. Uh, and for, for the, I, I expect that a lot of your listeners will be familiar with the broad outlines of the story, but it is quite incredible. Obviously, a lot of research was done to, you know, and then the archaeologists got on board, but the archaeologists weren't looking for Richard. They, they now say that they were, but they were looking for the medieval church, part of the monastery, and kind of thought that this Richard III search was a long shot. But of course, everyone <laughs> changed their tune a bit when Richard was discovered. So it's, it's an absolutely amazing story and um, I'm so thrilled for Philippa and and we decided to write the book about it together alternating chapters on on the the dig and also Richard's life so that was the the idea behind that but it's it's one of the most exciting things that that has happened really in terms of archaeology and because we found material on the Battle of Bosworth as well, with the remains and also with the discoverers, we can actually place and reconstruct um, the last stages of the Battle of Bosworth, which is quite extraordinary. It's like it was one of the biggest finds of this century so far. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, so extraordinary. And, um, you know, that. When I studied Richard III as a student, I, I was very struck by the fact that even the most hostile Tudor um, sources praised the way Richard fought at the end, at the end of the battle. And, and it's almost like with these discoveries, we're able to sort of go back in a time machine and reconstruct that last part of the battle. So it, it's so exciting, Rebecca. It really, really is that very moving, that very desperate, sad, but powerful um, moment where the Tudor story begins. Well, we've talked about a few of your books here. Where can our listeners find them? Well, we've mentioned The Black Prince. So The Black Prince um, is uh, published in the States uh, by Pegasus. And Pegasus I've also published um, my book on Bosworth, Richard III and the Battle of Bosworth. Both those books can be um, found relatively easily. Uh, and the book that I, I, I wrote with Philippa, The King's Grave, that was brought out in the States by St. Martin's Press. So those books, which I imagine would be the ones that would pique an interest, perhaps most are are available um, from American publishers. And likely on Amazon and other sites like that? Oh, too. yes, absolutely, absolutely. And do you have a website you'd like people to come check out? Yes, I do. So um, it's www. And then it's michaeljoneshistorian.com. And I will make sure to include links in the show notes for everybody so that they can easily access that information. That's very kind of you. Michael, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was so much fun to it's chat with you. It's been a pleasure. It's <laughs> been a pleasure, Rebecca. And 
you know, so much fun to talk about all these topics. And um, I've really enjoyed researching and writing about them. And I very much hope your listeners will, um, you know, their curiosity will be um, uplifted by um, some of these topics, I hope. And now, Ask the Expert. Welcome to today's Ask the Expert. I'm Steph, and I'm here with Royal Witches author Gemma Holman to discuss 15th and 16th century witchcraft. Welcome, Gemma. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. Anytime. So we'll start at the beginning. First things first, Michelle Solis, among others, would like to know, how was one identified or singled out as a witch in the first place? So it's a really interesting question to start with. Um, so basically, the idea of witchcraft and magic really changes quite a lot over time. Um, I mean, the idea of it had been around for, for centuries. You know, people, um, there were even witch hunts in ancient Rome. But sort of throughout medieval England, the idea of magic and that people could be witches and control things like that didn't really exist as much. It was quite in the background. People weren't really worried about it. It wasn't something at the forefront of people's minds. But as you get towards the end of the medieval period, this idea really does start to develop that actually there might be people who can do things that can't be explained. Um, and maybe people are in league with the devil and they might get some magical powers from that. So it's really right towards the end of the medieval period that people start to think about witchcraft as a concept. Um, but by the time you get to the 15th century, you know, right at the start of the century, the word witch didn't actually even exist. It wasn't a thing that people could point to someone and say, yes, that person is definitely a witch. And it's really during the 15th century that this idea starts to develop. And you have a few high profile cases, including the ones that are in my book. And this really shapes people's understanding of what magic was and who could wield magic and what witches were. And so right at the very end of the century, um, you have a German man um, published this book called The Malleus Maleficarum, or The Hammer of Witches. And this is like basically a witch hunting guide. And he really sits down and writes this whole book saying, this is what witches are. This is how you can identify them. Um, and he really placed um, witchcraft on women's shoulders. He really believed that it was overwhelmingly women who were witches. And this is because women are very emotional and weak. And so they're susceptible to the devil. So they're more likely to be witches and specifically it was immoral women um, and sexually loose women so if a woman had been a mistress or had sex outside of marriage um, then she was more likely to become a witch um, and it's really his ideas that go forwards into the Tudor period um, at the time of his book he was just one theory of many but as the Tudor period progresses, this really does become kind of the standard manual of how people identified witches. And once you do get into the Tudor period, that's where you do have that thing where you can point to someone and say they're a witch because they have done this. So it's really right at that end of the medieval period going into the Tudor period that these ideas are starting to emerge. So then were any of these women who were called out as being witches actually using charms and tarot and potions and things like that? Gillian Treves was asking um, if it was only just a term that's used against these women to imprison them or to call them out for their, like you said, loose immoral behavior, or were they actually any of them doing anything 
that suggested that they were practicing witches. Yeah, so that's the thing that I find really interesting about this period is that it's very much a bit of both. Um, you do have people who use accusations of witchcraft solely for political purposes, um, and that happens a lot with the cases um, in my book, but you also have many other cases across Europe where that happens. That it's very much politically motivated and there's no real substance there. Um, you do later on, sort of into the early modern period with the sort of 17th century witch trials onwards get people accusing not necessarily because they have evidence but there's this climate of fear and hysteria that things are going wrong and so it must be someone causing it um, and that person must be the person on the edge of society because they're the people most likely to but you do have this thing in the middle where it's not just that people believed in magic and witchcraft and that this existed there were people who did take part in this you know they didn't sort of come out of nowhere you know there were people who were trying to cast their fortune tell the future, trying to contact spirits. Um, so, yeah, there were definitely people doing this. It, it, it isn't just a solely made-up thing like we sort of maybe think about today, you know, this idea that it's just hysteria. People were engaging in it, and they were engaging in it in different levels of society um, and for different reasons. You know, some bits of witchcraft really that we would consider witchcraft today really did border on science for medieval minds. So the idea of astrology and predicting the future wasn't necessarily witchcraft it could be a science um and then you have this idea of like transmutation you know the idea that you can turn items into gold that sounds almost magical to us that you're magically changing something but for them they thought it was something that could feasibly be possible through science um so people are definitely dabbling in things and that can be dangerous for people and because people know that people are doing it it then leads credence when someone is accused because you know that there are people doing doing it so why can't it be that person doing it you mentioned the fear the hysteria things going wrong things like that vanja actually wrote in and asked us could witchcraft also be used for good things um like healing the sick or preparing for a good harvest did people use witchcraft for things like that yes i mean there's definitely this idea of good witches around um and Again, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a blurred line, really, because if, if you were trying to create things for good purposes, so things like getting a good harvest or, or you know, healing the sick, the thing is people would generally turn to religion for that. You know, you would pray to God to cure someone or, you know, hope that um, your village was behaving morally so God would bless you with rains and things like that. So the good side people often did turn to religion instead of magic um but magic does kind of grow out of this folk tradition of you know the idea of you'd have the old lady in the village who's a healer and she might know some charms and some herbs that might help you out you know that is still kind of magic and witchcraft to an extent um and there were people who would do that um and certainly going into later periods as well this idea of um you could have a cunning woman who would kind of be able to recognize bad magic and they would be able to tell you how to break a curse if a witch had cursed you they would confirm this for you and they would tell you what you can do to break it um and so they might not necessarily have been strictly considered witches but again it's that kind of good magic 
fighting the bad. Um, so it does definitely exist. And there's also this kind of middle ground um, of magic that's not necessarily good or evil. Um, so certainly towards the late medieval period, this idea of love magic comes out. Um, the idea that you could have a witch give you charms to make a man fall in love with you or to make you more fertile to have a baby. Um, that's one of the cases that crops up in my book is this woman says that she used a witch to make her fertile so that she could have her husband's children. Um, and so in that way, you could say, well, that's kind of magic, but it's not necessarily good or bad. You know, she's just trying to have a child. You know, that's not necessarily evil. Um, you could argue the ethics of using magic to make someone fall in love with you to be a bad thing, perhaps. But there's definitely different shades of grey and people using magic for different intents. Um, and astrology is another um, example. You know, some people just wanted to know their future. You know, they just wanted to know what was going to happen. And that's not necessarily evil magic. That's more intrigue than anything. And now we seem to be focusing mostly on women here. Um, we have listener Michelle ask a valid question when she wonders, could men actually be accused of this as well? Since I know that you mentioned earlier Things like sciences and astrology would sometimes be considered kind of occult practices as well. Were those types of things things that men were involved with? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is another thing that really does change in that crucial 15th century when the ideas of witchcraft are, are developing, is that actually sort of in the medieval period when people are thinking about witchcraft and magic, it is actually very often more male-focused than female um, because you have this idea of different types of magic and the kind of dangerous magic that the church and the state was concerned about was thought that you could only access this type of magic if you are a very educated person. You know, you can't just be any old peasant in a village and come up with a spell to summon the dead to tell your future. You know, that's really advanced. You have to be very educated. You have to read loads of books. You have to know Latin. You have to be able to access centuries-old texts. And the people who had that level of education in society were overwhelmingly men, and usually religious men, uh, men who were in the church, because that the place where you had most of your books so actually when you're talking about the late medieval period it's very often men who are accused rather than women because they're the only ones who are believed to be able to access this power um, and it's during this 15th century where you do start to get a bit of a shift towards the idea that women could do uh, magic and first of all they start to really become associated with love magic which I was just mentioning you know because love magic is viewed as more simple and more emotional and women are emotional beings, they're more likely to engage with things like that rather than this really serious, dark, malign magic. And towards the end of the medieval period, as I said, texts like the Malleus Maleficarum really sell this idea that actually it's women who are, because the idea is really solidified that you get your power through your devil, uh, through the devil, and women are more susceptible to the devil. So then once you go into the Tudor period, this idea really does shift that it's more likely to be women. Um, but even going further ahead into the early modern witch trials, although it's overwhelmingly women who are accused, um, in England, I think about it's about 80% of cases of accused witches uh, were women uh, or certainly convicted witches. 
that still leaves 20% that were men. You know, there were still men accused as time goes on. Um, so it's never just solely women. Um, and it's it's very much in England as well that we have that kind of split of women. Um, other countries in Europe sometimes have slightly different splits. They might have slightly more men accused than women um, and things like that. But, yeah, certainly in England, by the Tudor and early modern period, it is overwhelmingly women believed to be but earlier on it's very much a male focus that's very interesting thank you so now we'll focus again then on the later period when it is mostly women and we can start talking about the fun stuff the specifics that are in your book we can start with amanda richardson who wanted you to discuss maybe which royal women were suspected of being witches yeah, so uh, my book, Royal Witches, focuses on four women who were part of the English royal family in the 15th century. Um, and all four of them were not born into the English uh, royal family. They married in. Um, two of them were queens. Um, so that was Queen Joan of Navarre, who was married to Henry IV. Um, and that is Elizabeth Woodville is the second one who was married to Edward IV. And then there are two other women in that century. So you've got Elizabeth's mother, Jaquetta, of Luxembourg. And then you've got a lady called Eleanor Cobham, who was married to the Duke of Gloucester, um, who was the son of Henry IV, um, brother of Henry V, and uncle of Henry VI. Um, so at various times, he was also the heir to the throne. So these are women right at the very top of society. They are queens, they are mothers of queens, they're married to the heir to the throne. So there's pretty much no women in the country who are more powerful than them. And they are all accused of witchcraft. Um, supposedly, for different means. Um, some of them are accused of using it for harm to try and kill the king. Some of them are used, um, accused of using it for love magic. And that's towards the end of the century, as I said, when you start to get this idea that actually women are more associated with emotional magic rather than harmful magic, those accusations change alongside it. Um, I mean, accusations of witchcraft against powerful women had, had sort of had a little bit of a precedence. Um, so actually in France, um, just at the end of the previous century, um, one of the women um, who was married to the Duke of uh, Orléans, uh, she was accused of being a witch because this is the time when the French king is suffering from madness and he's not lucid a lot of the time and he believes he's made of glass and he doesn't know who he is. And a lot of the time his madness is calmed when this lady is in the room. And because her husband is so powerful when the king is incapacitated, people start to think that maybe she's been using witchcraft to make the king this way so that her husband can have power. So there's definitely lots of examples of this happening. Um, and even at a sort of lesser level, even if you don't have these full-blown accusations and trials, this idea that witchcraft could be thrown as an insult or as a reason against women has sort of been around for a while. Um, so in the 14th century, you have Alice Perez, who's uh, the mistress of King Edward III. You know, you have a chronicler say that she must have used witchcraft to bewitch the king into loving her because there was no other reason he would love her. You know, she was ugly and she was lower class and, you know, it must be witchcraft. Um, and then, you know, you've got rumours against Anne Boleyn of being a witch as well. And although they don't necessarily come to anything, there's always this idea that if you've got a powerful woman who seems to have control over the men around her the logical explanation is that she must be a witch because why else would people act like that around her speaking of these powerful women we can focus a little bit on elizabeth woodville and jaquetta of luxembourg you mentioned them 
a few minutes ago. So for those of us who are familiar with the Philip Gregory stories, I'm sure this is a thorn in your side, <laughs> but what aspects of their personalities were actually true that did lend themselves to have these targets on their backs? Um, in the stories, we hear things like, Elizabeth starting the storm to kill the Neville's son and things like that, which we know are impossible. But these two women in particular have been accused of witchcraft forever. Um, so Ellie Webster wrote in with that question. What do you think about that? Yeah, so it's really interesting to raise the Philippa Gregory books, actually, because they were in part an inspiration for my book. Um, when I was at university, I read about the case of Eleanor Cobham, who's the second woman in my book. Um, and I was really shocked to hear that, you know, this woman so close to the throne had been accused of witchcraft. And when I was younger, I'd actually read um, The White Queen. Um, and so as soon as I read about Eleanor, that immediately made me think of Philippa Gregory's books and how in the books, Elizabeth and Jaquetta were using witchcraft. And so I started to think, well, this is the same sentence and I thought, okay, is this just a plot in Philippa's books or is this based on something real? You know, is it just something that she's made up? And that's when I started digging and realized, no, actually, both of these women had been accused of witchcraft. So maybe there is something there. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a really interesting connection. Um, I think with, with Elizabeth and Jaquetta... There, there's no evidence that they did um, any witchcraft at all. Um, they've had these two accusations against them, but the evidence is very flimsy in both cases. Um, when Jaquetta is first accused, in fact, there's an investigation um, into the accusations against her. And as soon as this investigation happens, all of the... Um, the accusations against her basically fall apart because it's a bit of a hearsay where someone at court says that someone had found some figurines and that it had been, uh, they'd belonged to Jaquetta and so she'd been using witchcraft against the king and queen. And then when this original person is questioned, they go, oh, no, I never said anything to do with Jaquetta. Uh, this was just found in a house after some soldiers left. It had nothing to do with her. Um, and actually, someone asked me to say it was her, but I refused because it wasn't. So suddenly, this conspiracy is revealed that actually she had nothing to do with it. It's clearly completely false accusations. Um, and when Elizabeth is accused at a later date by Richard III, again, there's actually no evidence whatsoever However, um, in fact, in, the, in um, Richard's proclamation, it's to do with the tit, uh, Titius Regius, um, which is uh, giving the reasons as to why he um, should be king over Elizabeth's children. And in there, when he says that they took part in witchcraft, he literally just says, oh, as everybody in the kingdom knows, they both did witchcraft. So he doesn't even provide evidence. He just says, yeah, everybody knows that they did it. So... If we need to, at some point in time, we'll provide evidence, but we're not going to at the moment. So, again, it's really clear that actually this is a completely false accusation. They're not even bothering to try and give evidence. Um, and those are the only two mentions of them doing witchcraft, and they're both very clearly false. So, you know, in reality, it's impossible for us to know whether they ever did witchcraft. They could have done some charms in their home. Uh, you know, they could have 
tried to do witchcraft for all we know, but there's absolutely no evidence that they did. Um, and the evidence that is there is very clearly made up against them. Um, so it's, it's definitely very interesting because that's part of why these accusations of witchcraft were so successful. Because it's done in secret, it's very hard to prove that you didn't do it. And so the fact that, you know, nearly 600 years later, we're here going, oh, well, but did they? And we still can't know for certain because we don't know what they did in their private homes. Um, but as I said, all the evidence seems to suggest that they didn't do any. Well, then the next question is going to be a little difficult because we've seem to prove that you can't really prove anything or whether they, you know, whatever they do in their private homes and things like that. But our next question, again, is focused on Jaquetta of Luxembourg. Crystalyn wants to know if she truly believed that she was descended from Melusina. And if you could actually just tell us a little bit about who that is and why that um, that belief started in the first place. And then we can maybe talk about whether or not Jaquetta of Luxembourg believed that. Yeah, so uh, Manu Singh is a really interesting figure. Um, she's a sort of legendary figure from European folklore. And the story was that the Luxembourg sort of royal family claimed descent from her. So the story was that their founder, who was um, a man called Count Siegfried, um, who founded the city of Luxembourg back in the 10th century, um, the story was that he had married this beautiful woman who he'd sort of come across one day and he'd married her and the day of their wedding she made this castle appear on the rock that was the Luxembourg castle um, and they had a very happy marriage they had lots of children together but when she married him her condition was that one day a week she was to be left alone she was allowed to have privacy he wasn't allowed to see her at all and she was to be left alone so he agreed to this and they'd had many happy years of marriage but one day he spies on her whilst she's having her private time. And as he is spying on her, he finds out that actually she's a mermaid. Uh, so quite a big reveal there to find out from your spouse. Um, but as soon as she's discovered, as soon as he sees that she's a mermaid, um, she flees and vanishes and she's never seen again. And so this is the kind of origin myth for the territory of Luxembourg and the city of Luxembourg. And so all of the descendants of the Luxembourg family Therefore, we're claiming descent from a mermaid. So obviously, you know, that's very fanciful and magical. Um, and some people have sort of said that there's this idea that that's why it was easier for her to be accused of witchcraft was because she's saying she's descended from a mermaid. Um, there's actually very little to know how much she seized upon this legend. So it wasn't too uncommon, really, by this time for lots of these medieval dynasties to claim origin myths like this. I mean, if, even if you think back further, you know, the, the origin of uh, Rome being from these twin boys raised by wolves. Um, you've got in Britain, you've got the legend of King Arthur, which by the sort of middle medieval period, sort of Henry II time, he's claiming that the uh, kings of England are descended from Arthur. So you've got this sort of all over the place and they're kind of origin myths, but it's a bit hard to know how much people really believed that they were true. Um, and that, that Melusine really was a mermaid and they really were descended from her, or if they just all kind of accepted that it was a bit of a fanciful tale that wasn't necessarily true or not. Uh, with regards to sort of Jaquetta herself, 
as I said, it's very hard to know whether she played upon that origin myth or not. You know, she never writes a letter saying about her being descended from it. Um, the chronicles don't mention it at all. She didn't use any pieces of heraldry which had mermaids on or anything that would show that she's interested in it. The only bit that we've got connecting her to that legend is the fact that she did have a copy of the story of Melusine in her library. But even this isn't really proof that A, she read it, and B, she was really that interested in it and believed it, because this book on Melusine was actually a book held in the libraries of many other noble women in the country, and it was also just one book out of a huge library that she had inherited from her first husband, who was the Duke of Bedford, and this library also included the stories of Arthur. So, you know, again, it's that idea of, did she believe it was real? Was it just a story that she read? Did she ever even read it? You know, just because she owned it didn't mean that she had read it, um, especially when it was inherited from her husband. So it's definitely a very interesting story and does uh, add an interesting spin to the accusations against her. Um, but there isn't actually any evidence that the accusations against her, anybody ever mentioned this connection to Melusine. So if we fast forward a couple hundred years from that time, Neha Roy asked us, um, if we look at specifically the Tudor era, what what other accusations took place during that time? We, we know that potentially Anne Boleyn was accused of witchcraft um, as she was convicted, but who else might we have heard of during that time? Oh, that's an interesting one. So that's kind of slightly outside um, what I know. I'm not too sure of um, specific high-profile cases, but as you get into the Tudor period, um, the laws really do start to change around witchcraft. So when it's in the medieval period, witchcraft was considered a matter for the church because it was thought of um, as a moral issue and it was linked to uh, Christianity and heresy. Um, but actually it was under Henry VIII where witchcraft was first made a felony and he does this in the early 1540s um, and it's kind of around the time of the dissolution of the monasteries um, and it's very interesting that um, this witchcraft act that Henry introduces because it's the first one to define it as a felony it means it's a crime punishable by death and that people had to forfeit their goods and chattels and lands and in this act he removes the benefit of clergy which is where um, members of the church would be exempt from um, the sort of harshest punishments under the law and so the fact that this comes at a similar time to the dissolution of the monasteries is really interesting because you do start to get sort of members of the church accused of witchcraft and it's kind of another way for Henry to claim church land and wealth for himself. Um, but as it kind of runs on throughout um, throughout the decades in the Tudor period, different Tudor monarchs add their own rules and sort of change it backwards and forwards. So Elizabeth removes the death penalty for witchcraft unless physical harm was caused. So just being a witch and saying that you'd done some magic wasn't enough to have you executed. But if you'd said you'd used witchcraft to try and kill someone or try and hurt someone, then it was. Um, so this is really the kind of time where you do start to get the proper witch trials. It's really kind of Elizabeth onwards that you do start to get the proper accusations. Um, 
and as far as I'm aware, this is when it does kind of move down a little bit more, down more towards common people rather than members of the nobility. Um, that's not to say members of the nobility were not accused. They definitely still were um, in the sort of uh, witch trials under James um, in Scotland, King James. There's definitely nobles involved there. Um, so there are still these high profile cases, but it becomes much less of a sort of one off attack on a powerful person, unlike the sort of period of my book and things like Anne Boleyn and things. It starts to become more conspiracies. You know, there's the idea that witches don't act alone. So you wouldn't just have one person at court who's doing witchcraft. You'd have lots of people and there'd be people at all different levels of society involved. And I think that kind of lessens this um, need for high profile cases because you'd be implicating so many powerful people. It, it would be a bit too tricky to do, really. And I know that now we're kind of moving outside of your wheelhouse, but you did mention Henry VIII and Elizabeth I's involvement involvement in um, having it now become illegal, whether it's a felony um, that would result in execution. So all these things now are leading up to James I, who you also mentioned. And we know that he was notoriously obsessed with witches and had this intense fear. So are you familiar with what happened to him or around him before to uh, cause this obsession? Yeah, so uh, James is really interesting um, because he's sort of influenced by outside forces. Um, so in the 1580s, um, he was set to marry Anne of Denmark, um, who was the daughter of the King of Denmark, Norway. Um, and she set sail to Scotland to come and marry him. Um, but there's all of these storms that happen, and it's so bad that the fleet has to sail back home. They can't come to Scotland. And once James hears about this, he then decides to set sail to go and fetch her. So they get married over in Oslo, and they stay there for about half a year. Um, and and there were more storms on the way home. But interestingly, whilst he is over um, in Denmark and Norway visiting sort of his wife's family, there's this idea that witchcraft was responsible for the storms that stopped her journey. Um, so witch hunts were already starting to happen over in Denmark by this period. And you have the admiral of the Danish fleet um, who decides that the storms were caused by the wife of someone who he had insulted. And so in revenge, she had caused these storms. And so there's some witch trials over in Denmark because of this. And several people are accused and some of them are burnt at the stake so when James comes home he's been influenced by this you know and it makes sense in his brain you know his he's tried to get his wife there's storms he goes to get her and then there's more storms and it's it's a kind of easy explanation for something that doesn't otherwise have one and having seen these trials and seen firsthand, you know, people uh, admitting to witchcraft, that makes him think that maybe this is a thing. So when he comes back home to Scotland, he starts his own witch trials, which are the North Berwick witch trials. And they last two years. And I think there's about 70 people who are implicated. Um, and again, including a couple of high status people and Earl is implicated as well. And these people are tortured and they are 
admit that they've met the devil and they've tried to poison the king and his household and they tried to sink his ships and claiming all sorts of things. Um, and several people are executed. And this really sparks his interest, you know, hearing about this. It's suddenly a big worry for him. Um, and he spends the next few years sort of studying witchcraft. And he writes um, this dissertation, which he later turns into a book called Demonology. And this is where he explains uh, witchcraft and people's um, uh, dealings with the devil and evil spirits. Um, it also mentions some other sort of fantastical creatures of werewolves and vampires. Um, and it was a way to kind of in his mind, to educate people about what witchcraft was and why you should uh, persecute witches, you know, why they shouldn't be allowed um, from things that said in the Bible. Um, and so he sort of writes this, and that's really the sort of height of his interest. But interestingly, just after he publishes this, he seems to kind of lose a lot of his belief in it. It's not that he stops believing that witches are real, but I think he kind of realizes the implications of torture um, in making people um, confess. And it's part of the reason why you have so many more witch trials in Scotland than in England, is that in England, you weren't allowed to torture accused witches. And so if people are being tortured, they have a lot less incentive to admit to doing things, you know, because they're not being tortured. Um, and he definitely becomes a lot more skeptical. And he's sort of going into the 1600s, once he's become king of England, there's even a letter that he writes to his son, uh, praising him because he's discovered a fake witch, you know, someone who said that they're a witch, but then it's been proven that they can't be. Um, and so he's really starting to become a lot more skeptical. So he really rides the sort of highs and lows of this, where he has these horrid witch trials and he can see oversees people being tortured and he writes this essay. And then he sort of suddenly goes, oh, actually, there might be other reasons that people are confessing to this. And maybe it's not all as it seems. Perfect. Thank you so much. Well, thank you again, uh, Gemma, for joining us today. So on behalf of all of our listeners, I just wanted to say thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> of course, anytime. And just for those of you that want to know more or read your book, Royal Witches, where can we find your book? Where can we find you on social media or other sites? Anything you want to share with us? Yeah, so um, I'm on Twitter, uh, Gemma H. Author. Um, I also run a history blog called Just History Posts, um, which is a website, and it's also got its own Facebook and Twitter accounts, and I sort of share bits of history on there. Um, and then Royal Witches, you, you can get pretty much anywhere, really. You can get it on Amazon. Um, there's a UK version and a North American version, so if you're over in the US or Canada, you can get it over there as well. Um, but, yeah, all, all sorts of bookstores um, stock it. So yeah, if you're interested in learning a bit more, definitely uh, give it a try. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now, a brief history. If you're ever offered the opportunity to interview one figure from Tudor history, a great choice would be Anne Parr. Why, you ask? Well, Anne Parr experienced nearly every major event that occurred during the reign of Henry VIII, and it's said that she served all six of Henry VIII's consorts. And the last one, of course, was her sister, Catherine Parr. Anne Parr even saw Henry VIII's heir, Edward, take the throne in 1547. She was born in 1515 to Sir Thomas Parr and his wife, Maud. Maud had lost her father when she was only two years old, but her childhood was likely a happy one. 
Her mother had been influenced by Thomas More's ideas of how children should be educated, with gentle praise and encouragement. As a result, all three Parr children had a lifelong love of learning. The Parr's two other children were Catherine, whom we just mentioned, and William. We discussed William's wild love life in an early episode of A Brief History. Maud Parr was a close friend of Queen Catherine of Aragon, and for a time, Anne joined Princess Mary in the royal schoolroom and was tutored by Juan Louise Vives, who believed women should be educated just as thoroughly as men. At the time, Catherine was educating Princess Mary as England's sole heir and its future ruler, despite Henry's insistence that he had to have a prince. In 1528, Anne became a maid of honor to Queen Catherine. It must have been very exciting for her to have such a prestigious court position, but Catherine's status was beginning to crumble. King Henry had become obsessed with one of his wife's maids, a young woman named Anne Boleyn a woman whom he had recently decided to make his wife. Despite Maud's close relationship with Catherine of Aragon, Anne found herself fascinated by Anne Boleyn's ideas of church reform and the new faith. Anne Parr became an ardent reformist. Maud Parr died in 1531, and Anne became the ward of King Henry VIII, meaning he was responsible for managing her inheritance and finding her a good marriage. She remained at court when Queen Catherine was banished and was appointed as a maid of honor to the woman who replaced her as queen in 1533, Anne Boleyn. But Anne Boleyn's reign was destined to be a short one. In 1536, she went to the scaffold accused of adultery and incest. Henry replaced her quickly with Jane Seymour. Anne Parr's opinion of all of this is nowhere recorded, but it must have been a big change for her. Anne Boleyn had been glamorous and erudite, with books laid out in her chambers for her ladies to read as they would. Jane was a conservative, old-school Catholic, and her talents emphasized the domestic, such as embroidery. In 1537, Anne was one of the appointed servitors at Prince Edward's baptism and was very shortly thereafter at Queen Jane's funeral. About this time, one of the great Tudor gossips of the era, John Hussey, wrote that he thought Anne Parr would, quote, fall into a marriage soon. He was right. Less than a year later, Anne married William Herbert, delightfully described by a fellow courtier as, Mad fighting fellow. He was of good natural parts, but very choleric. He was strong set, but bony, reddish favored, of a sharp eye and stern look. William Herbert was the bastard son of the Earl of Pembroke and about 10 years older than his bride. He had murdered a man in 1527 and found it convenient to abscond to France for a bit. The king, possibly impressed by his service in the English military, granted William several estates, giving him a gentleman's income. In 1539, Henry VIII reformed the Spears, which was a royal bodyguard that had been disbanded when Thomas Wolsey reorganized the royal household. William was one of the gentlemen chosen. He became an esquire of the body about a year later. There's no way of knowing if Anne and William's marriage was something that had simply been arranged by the king or if the couple had expressed a preference for one another. Truthfully, the couple doesn't seem like they would have had much in common. In 1550, an ambassador noted that William could only speak English and could neither read or write, a judgment some historians question. 
but Anne wouldn't have been the first woman to fall in love with a man who was wicked and dashing. The marriage appears to have been a good one. The couple had three children and made their home at Bannard's Castle. Henry VIII married again in 1540, and Anne was appointed to serve his new wife, Anne of Cleves. But that union was short-lived. Henry quickly wed his next wife, Catherine Howard. Catherine seems to have taken a liking to Anne Parr and appointed her as the keeper of the Queen's jewels, an esteemed position of great responsibility. Anne was even tasked with keeping track of an ever-expanding inventory of gems. Those inventories became important when Queen Catherine was arrested, charged with treason for having been unchaste before her marriage to the king. The first thing the king's commissioners did was seize the young queen's jewels. Anne Parr dutifully handed them over along with her records. Perhaps it's a sign of how deeply respected she was that after the inventory was checked, the jewels were returned to Anne for safekeeping. Queen Catherine chose Anne as one of the six ladies she was allowed to bring with her to prison in Sion House. Catherine would languish there for months until Parliament could pass the legislation that made it treason to conceal a woman's sexual history if the king wanted to marry her and condemn her to death. It's hard to imagine what it must have been like to try to comfort a teenage girl facing execution as the long, dark months of winter slowly ticked by. Anne was with her until the day in February when Catherine boarded the barge that would transport her to the tower for her execution. Briefly, Anne transferred to the service of Princess Mary while Henry had no queen. But soon, Henry's eyes had drifted to Anne's sister, Catherine Parr. Catherine was somewhat of an odd choice for Henry, who had always insisted his marital adventures were for the good of England, to try to father heirs to spare the nation the threat of civil war. Catherine was 31 years old, considered middle age for the era. She had been married twice before and was thought to be barren since neither marriage had produced children. Over the centuries, historians decided that Henry must have married Catherine because he wanted a nurse. But there's no evidence that Catherine ever tended to Henry's wounds. Henry, after all, had the most learned and esteemed physicians. It's possible that the king pushed aside Catherine's other suitor, Thomas Seymour, and Catherine consented to being Henry's queen, more or less, because she really didn't have much of a choice. She says she did it because it was God's will. What did Anne Parr think of this? On one hand, the Parr family had reached dizzying heights by having a queen in the family. On the other hand, she was now married to a man who had already executed two of his previous wives. In 1546, after the famous Protestant speaker Anne Askew was arrested, Catherine came perilously close to being executed herself. Risley and Gardner were convinced that Catherine was part of a conspiratorial ring of heresy, and they tortured Anne Askew in an attempt to get her to name the Queen as one of her associates. Askew was a woman of gentle blood, and she had been exempt from torture. But Risley wasn't about to let legalities stop him. Despite incredible agony, Eskew never named a soul. Forewarned of his plot, Catherine was able to gently cajole Henry from his anger, claiming she only debated with him to distract him from his bodily pains and so that she could learn more in the process. The flattered king canceled her arrest. King Henry died the following year. 
William Herbert was one of the men who was honored with a position riding in the hearse next to the king's corpse. But given the old stories of Henry's coffin leaking, one wonders how much of an honor it really was. The king's son, Edward VI, himself a Protestant, became king. Anne seems to have been highly thought of at court. In 1549, a book was dedicated to her with the author writing that she excelled in virtue and bounty generosity as a diamond among the jewels of court. The scandal shook the court when widowed Queen Catherine decided to elope with Sir Thomas Seymour. Anne transferred from the queenless court to her sister's service at Chelsea, where they were joined by Princess Elizabeth and later Jane Grey. We don't have any narratives or records about this time, only the thinnest threads of fact, but it's delightful to imagine what it must have been like with all of those intellectual women gathered together. Would Anne have been able to tell Princess Elizabeth stories about her mother and how her faith had been shaped by the glamorous and pious queen? But their happiness was doomed to be short-lived. Catherine died of puerperal fever the next year. Anne Parr returned to the service of Princess Mary. And there must have been a strong friendship lingering from those days when they shared a schoolroom for Mary to accept the openly Protestant Anne into her service. In October 1551, William Herbert was created Baron Herbert of Cardiff, and the next day was elevated to Earl of Pembroke, making Anne a countess. But she wasn't able to enjoy the title for long. The following February, Anne Parr died. She lived only 36 years, but she served six queens, a princess, and two kings. She was buried in St. Paul's Cathedral eight days later, her tomb right next to that of her ancestor, John of Gaunt. Her Latin epitaph describes her as a most faithful wife, a woman of the greatest piety and discretion. Though William had remarried after her death, when his own death was approaching, he wrote in his will that he wanted to be buried near the place where Anne, my late wife, doth lie buried. Their tomb was a magnificent, towering edifice. Sadly, it was destroyed in the Great Fire of London when the cathedral burned. Anne was the only one of the three Parr siblings to have children that survived to have issue of their own. Her descendants today include the Earl of Carnarvon, who lives in the house in which Downton Abbey was filmed. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by leaving a review wherever you listen. Reviews are some of the greatest gifts that you can leave a podcaster because it suggests their show to people who may not have even known it existed. So thank you so much for your support. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.